Well, because our heart is, a, is after Jesus, as a church, our heart is for Jesus, uh, this also means our heart is for our community. Because uh, as we try to share in the heart of God, we see his heart for others. We see his heart for the community. And, and so we share in that. And we've been walking through what we call our 10-day challenge. Two weeks ago, we started this 10-day challenge. We pulled this from Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As we see the prophet Jeremiah speaking to those who have been taken out of their land, out of Judah, and, and put in Babylon. He's saying, hey, stay there and pray for the welfare of the city. Pray for the welfare of those, uh, of your captors in essence. And so we, we, we took that passage and said, hey, how could we live that out? And so we took this 10-day challenge to say, for the next 10 days, be praying for the welfare of your community. If you had a chance to walk that road with us, awesome, excited about that. If you didn't, you can start your 10 days today. I would encourage each one of us, if you finish your 10 days, like, hey, that was amazing. I love that. My mind was focused on my neighbors and on sharing the gospel with them. Man, what, what am I going to do now? Take another 10 days. You know, there's no reason that we can't continue to walk in that heart of praying for the welfare of our community as we share Jesus with them. One of the things we've been hitting on throughout this Daniel series is that we want to live courageously in a land of confusion. And these are confusing times, are they not? Uh, if you want to know what it looks like to live for Jesus, we're, we're going to talk about that each and every Sunday here. And there's all kinds of opportunities to get connected in with other uh, followers of Christ and learn about that uh, here at Meadowland and all kinds of other churches. Um, but on, on a worldwide scale, if you want to know what does it look like to live for Jesus, sometimes that can be a little confusing. You get mixed messages and, and different uh, points and, and, and topics that come up in our community. What does it look like to live for Jesus in this situation, in that situation? And it's not always as clear as you may think. If you're trying to figure out the best way to parent your kids, you can find people who are fanatic on all sides of every different equation. Well, you, you have to do this. No, you never do that. And, well, if you didn't do this, you messed up your kids. Well, if you did that, then you didn't. You, know, you can find people all over the board. And so we how do we best parent and raise our kids? It can get a little confusing. And once we finally decide on a plan, our kids don't always agree to go along with us in that plan. Maybe you're unsure of, of what your future employment's going to look like. Just kind of the, the uh, economical uh, situation we find ourselves in. Yes, there's been some, some improvements here and there, but there's still uh, plenty of people who are in a position of, of, of concern with their employment. Either they're still looking for employment or where they are now isn't a place that they really see as a career, but just kind of uh, helping to pay the bills right now. Maybe your health care is tied up in that. You're not sure how that's all going to come together. Or maybe your housing situation has some question marks over your head. These are confusing days that we live in, especially as we approach November. Navigating the political landscape, both nationally, regionally, or even on a local level, can bring about all kinds of confusion. As I try to say, what is really a way that I can move forward, that I can engage in my community and honor God at the same time? Some of us are probably a little extra tired this morning because you stayed up later than you typically do last night. As we see, the Chicago Cubs continue to move forward, and this may be a state of confusion for you. Um, you saw them steal home. You saw a grand slam last night. These are amazing things. All you know is a season of long-suffering. I mean, this may be the year, and so like, there's I mean, it's good confusion in that sense. I mean, go Chicago, we're, we're looking forward to that, but this is a, a land of confusion that we live in, and the challenge is this. How do we live courageously in all aspects of life, right? 
So even if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's things we're going to be talking about that I, I encourage you to try in your life. As we follow God's ways, as we walk in the ways of his word, that he would lead us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I believe God's going to work in the midst of that. But specifically, the question we want to address is how do we live courageously in our walk with God? So in this land that we live in, how do we, with courage, live for God? Because we acknowledge that life is a journey, and we're all at different places, and whatever place you are on in that journey, you can live courageously. Maybe you don't even know who Jesus is yet, and you're just seeking him. You can do that in a way that's courageous, that is pursuing God. How do I courageously grow in my faith if I've trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? How can I courageously praise God and give him honor by the way that I live my life? How can I surrender my life to God in this world? And this is what brings us to the study of Daniel. That's why we're, we're looking at the story of Daniel because there's all kinds of similarities uh, that we can draw these lessons from. In chapter 1, we talk about King Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And he exiles some of the, the, the Jews to Babylon and he gives them a new name. He gives them a new daily routine, a new job. He basically tries to take away everything that was Jewish and give them all these new Babylonian things. He tries to change their identity. But if you were with us on that first week, uh, and I encourage you to go back and read it if you missed it, and go online and get the message uh, at meadowlandchurch.org. Uh, but we see that basically no matter how much they try to take away their identity, we, we see the story of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, who, whose names are changed to uh, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so if you hear those two different names, that they're interchangeable there. We see that their identity is set in God. They know that they are the people of God. We talked about how courage comes from a clear identity. Who you are informs what you do. And so if you want to live courageously, if you want to grow courageously in your faith, in your walk with God, first thing we know is, is who are we? Who are we in the eyes of God? We come to understand that we're a child of God. So about in week two that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that threatens all of his wise counsel because basically he says, I'm not going to tell you my dream. You tell me my dream or I'm going to kill the whole lot of you. And they, this, King, no, no one can do that. And so he says, all right, you're all dead. And he sends people to go round up all the wise men, even ones that weren't even there, and give them a chance to kind of tell him, here's what the dream is. And Daniel hears about this, remember? And he says, hey, you know what? Go tell the king. Let's set up an appointment for tomorrow, and we'll sort all this out. Before he even knows what the dream is, but he knows who his God is. He knows his God is able to reveal it to him. And so he says, hey, goes to his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pray for me in this. And that night, God says, here's what the dream is, and here's what it means. And he passes that on to the king. We see Daniel's trust was in God's ability. Daniel's dependence was in one greater than himself, and that's where his courage came from. And he was able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, you had this dream about this statue, and it had a head of gold, and then a, a body of silver, and it kind of had all these different metals as it went down, and it represents your kingdom, the head of gold, but all these other kingdoms that will come. You know what happens when a new kingdom comes is the old one goes away. And so at first, because Daniel's able to reveal this dream and then give him the meaning, we see that Nebuchadnezzar praises him. He promotes him. Daniel's even like, hey, I got some buddies who could use some jobs too. And they get promoted as well. Well, as we go into chapter 3, the focus is going to be on Daniel's friends. Daniel's not involved in this situation that we're going to read about. Maybe he's off on a 
journey that the king sent him on. But for whatever reason, we just are looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up the Daniel chapter 3. As always here at Meadowland, it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, we have Wi-Fi in the building if you want to go digital and, and download an app. Uh, but we would encourage you, get the Word of God in front of you. If you ever hear someone say, well, the Bible says, call them on it. Where? Where? Help me find where it says that. Or check them on that and go there and say, okay, let me see with my own eyes. Let me know and, and read the Word of God. So Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if we convert what we know a cubit to be, we get roughly, uh, basically he sets up this image of gold that is roughly about 80, 90 feet high and 8 to 9 feet wide. We know that it's, it's made of gold. Likely, likely it's just gold plated, not solid gold. Um, but very little detail is given here beyond its size and materials. I, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read that, my first question is, well, what is the image of? Because he's made this image. Well, what is it of? If you're familiar with your veggie tales, you know it's a giant bunny. Well, there's some hints in the text. But we got to see this. That there's no confirmation. There's no confirmation of here's what it is in the text. But so we can say, okay, likely most believe that it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar. It's an image of himself or one that's supposed to represent himself. There's almost a natural flow here in the narrative where basically Daniel is explaining his dream. Your dream was this image that had a head of gold and body, you know, all these other kingdoms that were represented in this thing. And then the very next chapter, what do we have? We have this image of gold. It's possible, makes sense that it would be one of Nebuchadnezzar. It's very likely he did this in defiance to the dream he had. I mean, these are the kind of things I encourage you as you're reading through God's word, try to put yourselves in their shoes and see, hey, why would they do this? Or what's going on? What's the reasoning here? And so one theory is that, you know, he had this dream that was interpreted that said other kingdoms will come. Well, he says, well, no, they're not coming. We're Babylon. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm we're not just going to have the gold head. We're going to have a gold everything. And he makes this giant statue. So that's one theory. It's not confirmed in the text. There are hints to that. Um, but basically, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this giant gold image. And here's what he calls people to do. Let's jump to verse 3. Then the satraps, the, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the, the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they heard proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he sets up this giant gold image. He says, hey, when the band starts rocking, everybody fall down and, and worship this image. So we see that. Well, maybe this is an image of, of you know, one of the false gods of Babylon. I mean, they wouldn't have seen it as a false god. Um, but basically, when the, when the music starts, you guys ought to fall down on, the, on your faces and worship this image. And it's not just like a, hey, if you'd be kind, if you wouldn't mind, stop what you're doing. No, this is a, if you don't, we have a furnace over here and we're going to throw you in it. We're, we'll kill you. If you don't conform, you will be killed. 
I mean, we saw last week that, that Nebuchadnezzar was kind of kill happy. Hey, if you guys can't tell me my, my dream, I'm going to kill all of you. And then Daniel kind of stepped in, so hang on, hang on a sec, Let, let's put the swords down and let me tell you what your dream is. And, well, he's right back to his kill happy again. Hey, if you don't bow down, you're in the furnace, you're gone. Now, where we live today, in our day-to-day life, I imagine none of us have probably ever come up against a situation where if we didn't conform, our life was on the line. Now let's, let's acknowledge, let's take a moment real quick to say that we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that do face that reality. That today, in this, day, this modern day and age, are facing that reality where if they don't conform to the popular you know, viewpoints of their community, a group that's running their community, that death may be something they face. So as we remember that, as we think upon them, let's lift them up in prayer. And if you have any other ways you can find to support them, let's continue to walk with other brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that they do face that reality. But the reality that we face here in our society is that we see consequences if we don't conform. Consequences if we don't fit in. Have you ever experienced condemnation at work amongst coworkers if you were the odd man out? I've had situations in my own past where uh, there's kind of a common practice of ways to fudge your hours. You know, and it wasn't lying, lying. It was just, you know, you just pat a little here and pat a little there. And, and there came a point in my life where I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And some of the guys didn't think very kindly of me because of that. Especially the one that worked with me on a daily basis because if, if my hours were less than his, something didn't make sense. We worked the same day, the same hours. And so I, I didn't make any friends in that sense. Um, because it wasn't conforming. But sometimes we, we, we're willing to conform because we don't want to be condemned by those around us. Sometimes we don't want to face the judgment from others if we disagree. This is something we see in, in parenting all the time is there's different ways we can parent our kids and sometimes we'll say, you know what, I have opinions on this, but I'm just going to go with the majority because I don't want to face the potential judgment of standing out, of being different. Sometimes we give in to the fear of consequences because we don't want to be excluded from family and friends just because we maybe hold different viewpoints. One of the two things they say you should never talk about, religion and politics. Hey, let's talk about them. You know, and sometimes that separates people. Sometimes that causes division. Maybe yeah, you're still family, but you don't get invited to all the events as much. We'll see you at Christmas, if you're lucky. Yeah, but we, I think we can all think of situations like that either in our own lives or in our family and friends' lives, where we've seen those kind of things. Where if we don't fall in line with everybody else, if we stand out and stand apart, we may face condemnation, judgment, or exclusion. Sometimes we stand on our beliefs, and beliefs, and other times we fall down in the midst of our fear. And I get it. It is easier to go with the flow than to stand apart. It is easier to go with the flow than to stand apart. You ever been in a raging river? and they tried to stand up. If you're ever going uh, whitewater rafting and you fall out, they say just ride it out until you get to a, a calm spot in the river. And the reason for that is because the, you don't realize the force of the water, even only in a foot of water. And if you try to plant your feet, it can knock you over, and then you're falling flat in your face, and you, know, you could mess up your ankles, or you could hit you know, some of the rocks, or so they just ride it out until it's calm, and then you can stand, because it's not easy to stand alone. It's not easy to stand apart. But see, the Jews were called to be set apart. They were called to be a holy nation of God's children. And that, 
That's who we are as followers of Jesus. That's who we're called to be as well. 1 Peter 2.9 speaks to this. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, referring to the God the Father, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as followers of Jesus, we've been called out of darkness into light, and we've been brought into the family of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, we can see we're called to live a life that is set apart. But in verse 7, we see there, everybody's doing it. All the, the peoples, the nations, and the languages. Because remember, Babylon has been conquering all these other places as well. And, and what would they do? They would bring some of the people that they conquered back to Babylon to indoctrinate them back. In the, so you probably have a whole mix of different people there from different backgrounds. So how do you think you would have responded? Try to, try to put yourself in that scenario. How do you think you would have responded? So you just saw, okay, this big statue's been unveiled. Probably beautiful with the sun glistening off the gold. It's an amazing piece of architecture. And all of a sudden you find out, hey, when the music starts, it's not musical chairs. It's you fall down and, and worship or you go in the furnace. How would you have responded? How do you think your three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, respond? Now, if you're with us on, on week one, we saw that they were with Daniel and, and their, their willingness to refuse the king's food because it had been offered to false gods. They said, hey, we can't do that. As Jews, we only can eat stuff that's been offered to our gods. Or we can't eat things that have been offered to a false god. Well, if they've taken that stance, what are they going to do in this situation? Well, we find out in verse 12. In verse 12, this is the Chaldeans. Remember, they were kind of the, the uh, intellectual elites of Babylon. And they go to the king with some news. Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I find it interesting that the, the Chaldeans are going after these guys. I mean, you got to believe that they knew that, that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were kind of this bunch you know, this rat pack of sorts. And, and as we read their story, we see that there's an intertwining of their lives, of their stories. And how, how quickly they forget that it was Daniel that they owe their lives to, right? He was the one who was able to say, hey, king, here's what your dream was, and here's the meaning, because God allowed him to, to be given that. And yet, no, I, mean, I don't know if it was out of jealousy or what it was, but they're basically, hey, we're going to throw you under the bus. Um, here's some of the Jews that didn't bow down. It's also kind of sad, you see in there, if, if it says, um, there are certain Jews who are not bowing down. It means that there's other ones who came from Judah who were. We're like, you know what? We're, we're not going to stand apart. We're just going to go with the flow. If all we have to do is bow down and pretend to worship, whatever, we'll do that. But not these young men. The Chaldean accusation reveals this is a complex matter to the king. I mean, this isn't just a small thing to him. This is a, a religious, religious matter. Says, hey, they're not serving your gods. They're not worshiping your gods. So they're, they're hitting them at his religion. This is a political issue as well. If you remember from last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become leaders in Babylon. So this isn't just three guys who came from Judah. This is three people that you've made leaders in your country who are standing opposed to the king. What king doesn't love a good rebellion? None is the answer there. So this is a religious issue. It's a political issue. It's a personal issue. You see that the Chaldeans are like, hey, they pay no attention to you, O king. 
They don't go your way. They don't do what you say. This is a personal affront, is what they're saying. What's interesting, though, for the Jews, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this was such a simple matter. It was just a simple matter because they were familiar with Exodus 20, what it teaches us, what it teaches us and what it taught them, uh, verse 4 and, and beginning of 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. They would have been familiar with God's heart towards idols and bowing down to false images. So when the band plays every person, but also every Jew had a choice to make. Do I honor God? Do I stand against the crowd and face the furnace? Or do I fall down and worship of this golden false idol and deny my God? Well, see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, we can learn from them because they found courage in their identity, knowing who they were. They found courage in their dependence on God, one who is greater than them. And we're going to see that they also find courage in their convictions. Their convictions about who they know God to be and their relationship to him. Let's jump back to the story, verse 13. So Nebuchadnezzar just found out, hey, these three, they're still standing. That Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, again, this is a complex issue. This is hitting him on many fronts. In furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, he didn't give him a chance to, to answer. Now, when you're ready, I'm going to give you another shot here. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burnery, burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, little does he know. He is about to find out the answer to that question. 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Remember what we talked about week one? Every time you see a but when you're reading through scripture, just pause for a moment and say, hey, there's a shift here. Something changed. It's like whenever there's a therefore. So what's that therefore? Therefore, when there's a but, you say, okay, what just changed? This is, this is courageous living. These guys are saying, we know our God is able to deliver us. And he can do it. But, even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods. Man, talk about courage. They're convinced that God is able. They know who he is. They're convinced of who they are, that they are the people of God, and they're going to live accordingly. This is what gives them the ability to say, but if not, and even in that, is this acknowledgement that they are not God. We know that God can save us, but if he doesn't, we may not know what, you know, we don't know how God's always going to work. Can he? Yes. Will he? We don't know. We're not God. We're his people, though. So we will not serve your false gods. And it's their conviction and what they knew to be true that empowered them to say, but if not, even if God doesn't rescue us, we will stand for him. Spoiler alert, he delivers them. He rescues them. 
Courage comes from a conviction about who God is and our relationship to him. Think about that. Courage comes from a conviction about who God is and our relationship to him. See, everyone has some kind of belief about God. Even if you believe God doesn't exist, every one of us has a belief about God. We're not just talking about belief. We're talking about conviction. Professor Howard G. Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary puts it this way, a belief is something you will argue for, but a conviction is something you will die for. A belief is something you'll argue for. A conviction is something you will die for. I believe there are certain foods that are bad for me. I believe there's certain foods I can eat that will have consequences in about 8 to 12 hours. But I'm not convicted enough to stop eating them. I believe there are habits and, and vices that we experience as adults, even as young people, that we come to a point to believe they're not good for us. Even things that we would say are permissible as followers of Christ. It's okay to drink, but there's a level that moves to drunkenness. It's okay to do certain things, but there's a level we can take it to where all of a sudden it wanders into this world of sin. There's other vices that we can face. Things like our language, smoking, drinking too much, sleep habits. We can have beliefs about that. I believe a good night's sleep would do me well. But I'm a night owl and I don't have convictions about that. I, I tell myself, I get my best work done at night. But then I have kids that wake me up at six no matter, no matter how late I was up. See, at church, as I've grown in my faith, there's been times where it's almost palpable, where I can see God doing something in my life. I can see him bringing to light an aspect of my life, and he says, Steve, what do you believe about this? And I'll be humbled by that. I'll say, God, th this is something that's a part of my life that you don't want for me. Either it's sin, or it's just unhealthy, or you know, God, here's something I can just see that doesn't fall in line with the life you've called me to live. but until it moves to that place of conviction, I don't always see life change. I, I can tell you time after time where things that have, God has done in my life, life changing, he's brought about, started as a belief, but until it moved to this place of a conviction, something I was willing to die for, did it bring about change in my life? So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I live with the conviction that Jesus is God, or is this simply something I believe? Is it simply something I believe that doesn't say affect all that I do and who I am? Or is it a conviction? Am I convicted that Jesus is God? Let's go back to our story, see what happens to our guys here. Daniel chapter 3, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You kind of get the feeling here, he's trying to give them a pass. Like, hey guys, I like you, you're, you're, you're good guys. Hey, you know the drill, right? You just got to bow down when the music plays. Hey, strike up the band. All right, guys, here's your chance, right? Right, right, right? Sorry, king. He was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of, the, of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burnery, fi burning, fiery furnace. I keep combining burning and fiery to burnery. Apologize. I'll talk to Webster's about that and see if we can add that in. Save a little time there. Order them to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now we're not sure what this thing looked like. We kind of get some inferences uh, based off of the description here. This is something you can fit grown men into. This is something, as we're going to find out in a bit, you can see into. This is also something that uh, if you get too close, you probably can't get out very easily. Maybe it's got some kind of funnel to it. I don't know. But the men who tossed them in had to get close enough to get a point where you could toss them in. That actually cost them their own lives because of the heat from this. If you had a chance to join us uh, out at Royal Oaks, uh, we had our family fall fest out there. They know how to do a bonfire. And if you were one of the guys or gals who were like, uh, you know, putting yourself out there to roast some hot dogs or marshmallows, you know a little bit, a small piece of what it's like to overheat a furnace. I mean, we have people building a whole wall out of the extra wood to hide behind to shield themselves as they're using these like three foot long pokers we have. It was just a hot fire. So here's a furnace, seven times hotter than it usually is. So much so that when these guys throw them in, they're consumed. They're overtaken by it. So is this the end? Again, if you know the story, I already spoiled it for you, that there's deliverance that's going to happen here. But imagine this was the end of the story. They defied the king. They stood for their God. And now they're thrown in the furnace. It still preaches. We still see that if this temporary life was number one in their, life, in their priorities, they would have fallen and worshipped. But a life with the eternal God was number one. That was their priority. And so they were willing to fall into the flames regardless of what God would do because of what God had already done, because he was their king, because he was their father, and because they were his people. Let's see what happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He, he answered and said, but, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I mean, you, can, you can almost sense this, what, what's, what's going on? We, we, we threw three in, right? Yeah, yeah. Fire burns and kills, right? Yeah, no, yep, you're right. They, they were tied up, right? Yeah, no. Then why do I see four guys walking around? Who dropped the ball on this one? I mean, I, I, he's trying to figure this out. He says, well, this fourth one looks like a son of God. Like the golden image, we can make some inferences as to what this actually is and who this actually is, but the text doesn't affirm it. Uh, later, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar calls this fourth person an angel. Uh, some would say this is, it could even be Jesus walking around in there with them. But regardless, we can, we can make the, the, the deduction that this is a messenger from God, whether it's God himself or an angel that protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. You've got to wonder when they heard that. Like if I was like, hey, all right, yeah, let's, let's go with the guy who just tried to kill us. Or let's hang out and hear with Jesus or an angel or whoever it is and watch things not burn. I mean, that'd be pretty trippy, right? But he calls them out. They come out of the fire, verse 27. They say traps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. That, that's the miracle right there. I mean, man, 
You get a hot blow dryer, you'll send your hair. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. And again, we see Nebuchadnezzar take another step closer in his journey with God. He's still got a ways to go, but he's walking. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Remember, this is the king speaking here. Any people, nation, or language that speaks uh, anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. So he's still a little kill happy, but that's all right. You know, he's making progress. Shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What, what a turn of events, right? All because these three young men willing to stand for God on their convictions. As I was thinking on this story, the question that continued to plague me, the question that continued to run through my mind is, so what keeps us from living this life of conviction? What keeps me from living the way that these young men did? What keeps me from standing apart? I'm not going to do this this morning, but I almost thought about using the example of having someone in this room stand up in the middle of the room and, and make up some silly, crazy scenario. Make it as uncomfortable as possible for that one person. But, you know, I figure we'll, we'll hold off on that. But there's times where that's what it feels like to live for God, to take a stand on, on what we believe, to, to live out of our convictions on who God is. And yet so many times I feel like we're probably the rest of the Jews in that story who just went along with the crowd, went along with the world around them. So what keeps us from living a life of conviction like this? Three things that came to mind for me that I want to share with you. First one is this, fear. Fear. The more I look at it, the more I see that we are afraid of so much. You know what one of the most frequent commands in Scripture is? Old Testament and New Testament. Fear not. Fear not. It also tells us that, you know, fear is something that we're going to face a lot of. It's one of the things that God speaks the most about. Fear not. I think one of the things that causes this fear the most is that we have misplaced hope. When we place our hope in the wrong place, I think it breeds, I think it brings about fear in our lives. The best example that I'm seeing of this, especially with where we are as a nation right now, is I've seen so many people putting their faith in a, in a politician in a political party, in an election cycle. I've seen Christian leaders making excuses for the sins of their Christian candidates. Now, I need to be very clear on this. I'm talking about a can any candidates who say, I am a follower of Jesus. If you make that claim, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we hold each other to what God's word calls us to, right? And we lovingly walk with each other in that. And I've seen story after story, multiple different candidates, where there are Christian leaders in our culture who are making excuses for the sins of their candidate. As far as where your vote lands, that's a whole other conversation we can have if you want. But as far as how we deal with sin, we can't put our hope in a political system. We can't put our hope in a government. Our hope when it comes to how do we deal with sin goes one and one place only, in the person of God, in the person of Jesus we're to call our brothers and sisters to repentance. 
I mean, think about how backwards this is, right? A Christian who would make excuses for the sin of another uh, who's claiming Christ. If we are in Christ, what does that mean? That means our sins are dealt with. Our sins are forgiven. And so if I'm sinning as a follower of Christ, and you're my brother or sister in Christ, the best thing you can do to follow God's word would be to, in love, help me to see the error of my ways, help me to see my sin, and help me to move to a place of repentance. Repentance literally means to turn 180 and go the other way, where I, I walk away from my sin. It's not an abandonment of me. It's not an endorsement of my sin. It's seeing it for what it is and saying, Jesus took care of that brother. You don't need to mess with that. It's dealt with. It's paid for. But there's too much fear out there. There's too many living in fear because they've misplaced their hope on anything other than God. Is this making sense? Are we seeing this? Are you seeing this too in your life? Whether it be something you're experiencing firsthand or you're seeing in the lives of, the, of others. And so I think one of the ways we can respond to that is to share that hope that we have in Jesus. So every time you see that phrase, fear not, what accompanies it is an acknowledgement of God. Fear not, God. Fear not, look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look at his love for you. Look at the salvation that's offered through Jesus. That's a free gift of grace for us to receive. Let's quit messing around with this garbage and this sin and, and repent of that and move to a place of, of living in the power and the life of Christ. And let's call each other to do that out of love. And let's walk with each other in love to see that accomplished. So I think one of the things that keeps us from living a life of conviction, which would lead to a courageous life, is fear. And that fear comes from misplaced hope. I think something else that robs us of this life of conviction is ignorance. Is ignorance. There's things that we simply don't know and we're not pursuing. We don't know what we believe in order to have any convictions about it. Why do you believe what you believe? Can you answer that question? As you think about your beliefs on God, even if they're vastly different than, than our statement of faith as, as a church. First of all, we're, we're glad you're here. Let's have open dialogue. Let's have conversation about who God is and who Jesus is. But as you think about your beliefs, do you know why you believe them? Is it because you, you've examined the evidence? Is it because you, you, you've looked at the evidence we see in history as to the claims of Jesus? And you've come to a place to say, you know what? There's only one thing that I could see to be true. Either he's God or he's a lunatic. So there's really no middle ground we, the more we examine the claims of Jesus. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Or is it, you know what, this is what I grew up being taught. I've never examined it for myself. I think sometimes the reason we can't move from belief to conviction is because we don't know enough. I think sometimes that's how we get caught up in, in taking the wrong approach Sometimes. This is something else that, that I see as a trap that we fall into as followers of Christ is we focus on what we're against instead of what we're for. Do you notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't make a fuss against the idol, but they stood for God? They didn't give Nebuchadnezzar this big, long dissertation, or they didn't boycott, they didn't do all these other things. They said, hey, you know what? This isn't what our God would have for us, and so we're going to honor our God. And so this is what we're for instead of focusing on what they're against. I love this phrase. Pointing out a problem without offering a solution is just complaining. 
pointing out a problem without offering a solution is just complaining. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop complaining about people and start loving them. If you find yourself looking at others saying, here's all the garbage you have wrong, man, that's the wrong place to start. We're starting with what we're against. Let's, let's offer that solution of Jesus. I think it's easy for us all to say, you know what? We've all got garbage. We've all got sin. We've all fallen short. But I got great news. Not than I did, but it's what Jesus did. Let me tell you about him. I, I got a solution to this garbage. So we need to stop complaining about people and start loving them by sharing Jesus with them. So I think fear, I think ignorance, I think something else that keeps us from living a life of conviction is this, is comfort. Man, have we become comfortable. We become comfortable in the world. Pastor Kerry Niehoof, I don't know how to say his last name, I've even heard him say it and I keep butchering it, so I apologize, Kerry, if you're listening. If you're listening, wow, hey, cool, thanks for listening. Um, he's a pastor in Canada, has some blogs, has some great leadership material out there. Uh, he says this, he says, we are called to make disciples, not be disciples. We're called to make disciples, not be disciples. The first time I heard that, I kind of pushed back a little bit. I'm like, well, no, but we're called to be disciples too. Well, I thought about it, like, no, if we're making disciples, that's being a disciple. And his point is this, to be a disciple, you know, it's, if we're not really understanding what it is, there's a sense of just, okay, I am, I can be done now. But to make is this step of action, a step of, of engaging those around us, stepping out of our comfort zones, going into a world that needs to know about Jesus. And it's not going to be easy. Especially if you've never talked with someone else about Jesus, find someone you love who you know loves you and start there. Because a lot of times the first, it could be really awkward. So um, can, can, can I tell you about Jesus? <laughs> sure, let's talk. You know, start there. And the more this just becomes a conviction about who we are. The more it just becomes a natural expression. The more it becomes our language. In the same way that it's not awkward in the way I love my kids. It's not awkward in the way that I love my wife. My jokes are a little awkward sometimes. They don't always land, but that's okay. They love me. It's just, that, that's, I'm, I'm their dad. I'm Sarah's husband. So the more we can live in our identity of who we are as sons and daughters of the Almighty God who have been bought and paid for, whose sins have been dealt with at the cross by the blood of Jesus, the more we can live in that reality and go make disciples by loving on our neighbors, the more just talking about Jesus, talking about God will become just a regular part of our lives. Not in a weird, let me show you this tract sort of way and, and have a t-shirt that does all my talking for me. They'll know we're Christians by our t-shirts kind of stuff. Nothing against that, whatever. Um, but let's make sure that we're just in everyday life saying this is who I am and stand in that